Hello, and welcome back to She Existed, the podcast wherein I, Ashlyn Romagnoli, share the story of a woman of history and or legend previously unknown to me. People, I am so excited today because Allison 3000! Who are you? I don't know you. I mean, at least I don't think I know you. Maybe I do. Just let me know <laughs> if I do and I'm mistaken in that. But but you left a review, a good review of my podcast. So if you're listening to this now, um, if you've kept on this train, I want you to know that you made my day. Now, the fact that Allison3000 left this review over a month ago and I am just now seeing it should tell you something about my motivations for making this podcast. I just like doing it. Uh, but nevertheless, I am flattered and honored that anyone would take the time to make a review. And if it helps more people learn about more fascinating women, like, so much the better. That is the mission. And if I get a little psychological boost on the side, I'm not going to say no. Look, it's 2021. We take what we can get. Before we jump into today's episode, which I'm super excited about, just a little cast update for any of you who are curious. Uh, last week, the imperative was to get little Casanova to eat or face hospitalization, which I want to avoid because he hates the vet, and it's not like we can explain this to him, and I just don't want to put him through that horrible trauma if, oof, you know, if we don't have to. Like, literally uh, just had to get him to eat anything. And my vet was actually hilarious about it. She speaks great English, but with, like, a really strong Italian accent, and she was like, you know this Felix brand? It's a shit food, but they love it. <laughs> Sorry for my terrible Italian accent, but that was, it was amazing. Um, so yeah, that's where we're at. If Sweet Casanova will only eat the feline equivalent of Taco Bell, that is still better than nothing. Now, I actually went to the farmer's market and got amazing chicken breast that was so organic, we barely recognized it from over-familiarity with the American supermarket chicken. And fortunately, the little snob did eventually condescend to eat that. So... Still waiting for test results, but overall, feeling pretty optimistic, at least about his immediate comfort levels, if not long-term prognosis. But more about that next time, I guess. Okay, so today we're talking about Kubaba, also known as Kukbao or Kubao. Kubaba was a Sumerian queen who ruled the city of Kish around 2500 BCE. Yes, we are back in ancient times, my favorite. If you don't know where Sumer was, uh, think like South Iraq. Kish in particular was about 50 miles south of Baghdad and is near the modern city of Tel Ai-Uhaimir. Now, in ancient Sumer, kingship functioned in a kind of interesting way. It was linked to a specific place and would occasionally move seats from one city to another and sometimes even back again. Kish was one such and was actually the very first seat of the sort of uh, quasi-verified Sumerian kingship very, very early on, according to the Sumerian king list. There are actually earlier rulers listed than the ones from Kish, but they are presumed to be mythological. Though, if you have listened to this podcast enough, you know that I treat myth with a big old question mark, like, maybe it happened? I like to think that I'm a logical and skeptical person, but I'm also not just willing to toss out all myth as just like fake stories people made up. Too many times we've discovered that people we assumed were myths were real, and way too often that these are women, uh, because often we hear stories of women doing amazing things in history and we're like, that can't be. Women were just treated like garbage forever in history, which, kind of true, at least sometimes, but it's a lot more complicated than that. And I mean, I'm sure that things get embellished and fracture and change with time, but there are enough interesting coincidental facts 
that my question mark will always remain. For example, the very end of the first supposedly fictional section of the Sumerian king list ends with, then the flood swept over. Chills. I love a brief sentence with such power and impact. Yes, I do enjoy Hemingway. You can like Victorian literature and Hemingway, but that is another podcast. Anyway, not a flood, the flood, the ancient one that pops up all the time, making this portion of the king list uh, antediluvian, which is one of my favorite words, which means before the flood. Check out the Epic of Gilgamesh for more detail on this specific flood. Oh, and coincidentally, the last king in this first section of the Sumerian king list, the one that's supposedly mythological, is the father of a character from the Epic of Gilgamesh, who is explicitly named uh, and connected to this king. So this king's son was tasked with building the raft to save humanity in said epic. So basically, Sumerian Noah. I could talk about this for a very, very long time. So I'm just going to cut myself off here. But yes, um, if you didn't already know this, uh, the biblical flood has been covered in many other sources. It was a real thing. Anyway, so the first Kish dynasty, remember, the dynasties of kingship in Sumer are defined by the cities that become the capitals, uh, begins thusly, quote, after the flood had swept over and the kingship had descended from heaven, the kingship was in Kish. And it stayed in Kish for a long time. We don't know how long. Uh, Ancient sources list several kings ruling for like 900 years each, so let's just call it a long time. Uh, Before the kingship detoured to a few other places, returning to Kish every so often until the time period in which we are concerned. So, again, like 2500 BCE. Kubaba is especially interesting to me because she is the only woman on the Sumerian king list. And it is important to note that we know that she was a ruler in her own right because the word used to describe her in Sumerian indicates the kingship title itself, not the word for a consort or queen. She was the king. Okay, so the Sumerian king list. Well, let's detour back here for a minute. I know, I know, I'm sorry, but it's just too interesting. Even though we are mostly concerned with women in history on this podcast, I highly recommend scanning the Sumerian king list if history gets you half as excited as it gets me. I get that the writers had to be brief with descriptions, as it's a long list, and cuneiform surely cannot be that easy to engrave, but the intense brief descriptions that have survived are endlessly amusing and intriguing. For example, here are a few notable lines from it along with my questions. Quote, Then who was king? Who was not the king? Okay, like, did we have ancient Sumerian communism? Was there political confusion? Lots of kings getting assassinated one right after another, so we just had dozens of kings? Or this one. Then Urim was smitten with weapons. So are we just agreeing that the past tense of smite is smitten? What about smote? Or are we just saying he was super into weapons? I mean, I know that this is probably just a translation problem, but funny nevertheless. There is also this weird obsession with gardeners, which I guess sort of makes sense when you consider this to also have been the homeland of ancient Babylon, which I heard had some banging gardens, hanging gardens even. Ha ha. One king, Era Imiti, was said to have appointed his gardener his successor and then immediately died. 
Like, apparently the gardener was supposed to serve as a scapegoat, which I guess historically, um, I actually didn't look this up for this, so forgive me if I'm, I'm wrong, but a scapegoat was like this uh, goat that you imbued with all of your like sins and it was like a symbol for all the shit you'd done wrong and crappily and then you burned it and that was supposed to appease the gods. So probably the case here, I would guess, because this gardener was supposed to serve as a scapegoat and get sacrificed, but Eremiti mysteriously that's the king, mysteriously died, and so the gardener remained on the throne, which I think is why you don't name heirs or reveal your will until the very, very end, people. Another king, Sargon of Akkad, called Sargon the Great, is listed as having been the son of a gardener. I am just fascinated by that ascent. Like, were gardeners just really revered, or is it a metaphor, or did he just kick that much ass? Anyway, Sumerian king list will keep you occupied for a while if you are bored. And gardening wasn't the only humble to our ears, sounding Genesis story on the list. Kubaba herself was described as, quote, the woman tavern keeper who made firm the foundations of Kish. That's right, a tavern keeper or maybe alewife. Here's one account from one of the pieces contained within the Babylonian Chronicles. It's actually a letter that is considered to be mostly propaganda called the Weimar Chronicle, which we presume was written in about 1800 BCE, so maybe a few hundred years after Kubaba lived. Note that it's a little broken up, as fragments are missing, so ignore some weird grammatical constructions. It's usually me, but this time it is not me, it's just this text. In the reign of Puzir-Nirah, king of Akshak, the freshwater fishermen of Esagila were catching fish for the meal of the great lord Marduk. The officers of the king took away the fish. The fisherman was fishing when seven or eight days had passed. In the house of Kubaba, the tavern keeper, they brought to Esagila. At that time, broken anew for Esagila, Kubaba gave bread to the fisherman and gave water, and she made him offer the fish to Esagila. Marduk, the king, the prince of Apsu, favored her and said, let it be so. He entrusted to Kubaba, the tavern keeper, sovereignty over the whole world. So like, tasty fish and bread and water in exchange for total sovereignty over the known world? I mean, I guess there have been way dumber reasons to appoint a ruler. At least she sounds like a generous person, uh, which I think is a very good quality to have in a leader. And as I noted before, a few sources I came across thought that rather than just bread and water, um, she may have had an association with brewing, since, uh, roughly speaking, bread and water are two ingredients in beer. And <laughs> now, I would love nothing more than to take you on another fanciful detour about beer in ancient Sumer, uh, but suffice to say that it was a pretty important beverage at the time. Shout out to Peter Damerau of the Max Planck Institute in Berlin, who wrote a paper called Sumerian Beer, the Origins of Brewing Technology in Ancient Mesopotamia, which I found bizarrely fascinating. To any academics out there who might be listening, who despair of anyone actually reading their highly niche research, we're out here. There are probably tens of us who could seriously get down with this kind of obscure detail. Damerau notes a wide variety of beers available to the discerning Sumerian partaker, including golden beer, dark beer, sweet dark beer, red beer, and strained beer. Um, I'm assuming that that means strained of like any crap in it, not like tense beer. <laughs> so obviously, uh, beer was important enough in society to have a variety of options, so maybe it was a big deal, and she just brewed so much dope beer 
that she got to be king. I don't know. Don't quote me on that one. We don't know that much about Kubaba's reign itself, aside from the note in the king list that she, quote, made firm the foundations of Kish. But that sounds like a pretty resounding endorsement to me. Now, for an alternate opinion on this, because it's worth investigating, because I'm not an expert, one scholar, uh, Jean-Jacques Glasner, wrote in his Mesopotamian Chronicles book that this referred to the refounding of a city, um, this whole foundations bit, because Kubaba was a woman, so like not really in a great way. He writes this, quote, because Kubaba was a woman, an innkeeper, and a king of Kish, I'm sorry, okay, I'm kind of, if you could hear it in my voice, he put, he literally put quotes around, uh, the word king, which kind of annoys me because, I mean, she's on the damn list without any weird comments from the Sumerians. Um, but I guess he likes it. Okay, sorry, we're getting back to it. A king of Kish, she was on three counts a devotee of Inanna, patroness of inns, patron deity of the city, and goddess of sovereignty. Both were women, and this quality determined both their personalities. In a world that thought of itself in the masculine, and where sovereignty was an eminently masculine quality, the female sex was the image of inversion of the norm. It was therefore essential to refound Kish when a woman ruled it. Okay, so I obviously uh, already made my little snarky comment within the quote itself, which is not cool. Um, I should keep my, my quotes pure. But um, anyway, I made my snarky comment about his dismissive use of quotation marks. But, I, you know, I'm going to own that I am not a Sumerian scholar, and this dude is. So worth hearing his opinion. But again, uh, I like my question marks, and I don't like the amount of assumptions that we make about women and how they were viewed. Um, I think a lot of times when we're looking at ancient history, we come with a lot of preconceived assumptions. I mean, there's a huge body of literature about goddess cults um, in this time and earlier times. And again, you know, I can't say that a lot of that research can be applied to this specific situation. But again, there's just more nuance, and we should assume that our perspective from a modern time about what history is has been strongly influenced by a lot of different filters and assumptions about what history looked like and how people interacted. Because the thing is, there isn't just like you have patriarchy or you have matriarchy. And I am positive that there are nuances to women's roles in different cultures that we couldn't begin to understand, especially across the expanse of time. I mean, a lot of contemporary Western women struggle to understand how and why contemporary Muslim women can choose to wear the hijab, but that doesn't mean we should assume that we know better than they do about what's going on for them culturally and ban it. Hint, hint, looking at you, France. Anyway, uh, just a friendly, she-existed reminder that we should question both our own preconceptions and those of the people telling us things. I mean, maybe Glasner is totally accurate, and he certainly has way more expertise and access to resources than I do, but a little question mark, a little flexibility on understanding, and an acknowledgement that as much as we want to, we're never really truly going to know the deal here, never hurt anybody. Because beyond that notation, um, which... You know, the translation that he used made it sound a little bit more negative. The translation that I found made it sound more positive. I mean, firming the foundations, that's not restructuring. That implies affirming. But again, I don't speak ancient Sumerian. But anyway, that notation could have been meant positively, neutrally, or negatively. I will own that. But just being listed 
as a king meant you were kind of a big deal, because not all kings got a mention by name in the official Sumerian king list. So from a later era than Kubaba, for example, I found this note, quote, In the army of Gutium, at first no king was famous, they were their own kings, and ruled thus for three years. And then the author goes on to list other kings later, presumably of more importance. So Kubaba was important enough to be listed at all, and to get a little description. I'll take it. Her son and grandson both followed her as kings in their own time, though whether this was a direct line of inheritance or interrupted by other rulers is disputed. Kubaba herself eventually became recognized as a deity, with many shrines across Mesopotamia. She's associated with the goddess Hepat, in an early form of the goddess who eventually became known as, drumroll please, Mater Kubilea, or the only known Phrygian goddess. And if you've been listening to this podcast since day one, that name might spark a very faint memory. Because Mater Kubilea was Sibylle, or Magna Mater, as she would come to be known in ancient Rome. And if that isn't some fascinating worlds collide kind of shit, I don't know what is. History is huge and daunting and exhausting to try to make sense of, but this is the kind of interconnectedness that I make this podcast for. Here's what I'd recommend you dive into if you are still curious. Kubaba, spelled K-U-B-A-B-A, are many other spellings too, but you'll find it if you Google that. Sumer, S-U-M-E-R, Sumerian King List, you can figure that one out, Mater Kubilea, M-A-T-A-R-K-U-B-I-L-E-Y-A, and ancient brewing practices, because who doesn't want to learn more about that? Thanks for listening, and I will catch you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye. Another little afterword. If you are curious about learning more about what I kind of touched on earlier about the idea that it's not that patriarchy means, like, men crushing women and that matriarchy means women crushing men... Um, there's a lot more nuance there. So my very favorite scholar about this subject is called Rianne Eisler. Um, so R-I-A-N-E-E-I-S-L-E-R. And uh, she became famous in the 80s, I think, for writing a book called The Chalice and the Blade that was really one of the first works that purported this idea that goddess cults weren't just the inverse of patriarchy. They were not women subjecting men to their will. It was really about the idea of a culture of partnership versus a culture of domination. So patriarchy is kind of a shorthand for this culture of domination, about having power over others and having that be the way that you perceive the world and live with um, matriarchal communities that usually worshipped a central goddess figure like Sibylle, for example, being more about sharing and partnership and equality. So women had very important roles in these societies, of course, but so did men. Anyway, I could talk about this forever because it is my favorite thing that I've learned in many, many years. Um, You know, her work is seen as controversial, but really it's the foundational inspiration for this podcast because it is the first thing that really made me think about why we make certain assumptions. I mean, you've probably heard the little anecdote about all of these male archaeologists getting confused about 
this like 28 day notched ancient calendar that they found like why 28 days and um a female archaeologist being like uh that's probably a woman tracking her period uh that just like blew their minds and you know again these aren't things that we can prove but you know what like the assumptions that we make the stories that we place on these artifacts we can't prove them either way so I think the important thing is just to have an open mind and to try, it's impossible to do this entirely, but to try to question what we've been told and why and to be open to other interpretations. Okay, that is enough freestyling uh, PSs for me, I think, for today. Thanks again, guys. You're the best for listening. (laughs) 